welcome to Dark Gate Horror Podcast episode number 17. This Halloween episode will discuss urban legends. Let's start with some news. This is a great time of year for all things horror. I've been able to catch a lot of great classic horror films on AMC and ABC Family, in addition to all my Netflix activities. And there are some excellent movies opening soon, so I hope you take advantage. Don't forget to check out this month's 10th anniversary edition of Rue Morgue magazine. There's an article about horror podcasts, and Darkgate Horror received a great review. In fact, several new listeners have emailed me letting me know that is where they heard of this podcast. So thanks to Rue Morgue. And for those of you not familiar, Rue Morgue is the premier horror magazine covering all genres of horror. And it's an honor to be mentioned. I had the opportunity to attend the Dusk to Dawn Horrorthon last night at the historic Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, California. It was an all-night extravaganza, included showings of Return of the Living Dead, Freaks from Beyond, based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Beyond, also known as Seven Doors of Death, Last House on the Left, and two more Grindhouse films I did not stay for. It was already 4.30 in the morning, so I decided to pack it in. It was brought to us by polystaffel.com. As I've already meant spend a lot of time discussing zombies recently, I'll refrain from sharing my opinions on these films right now, and I'll discuss from beyond during my HP Lovecraft episode. It was a great time, and I really enjoyed Freaks. I will discuss this classic at a later time as well. But next, I have a really exciting announcement. In the Blood is a stylized horror tale in the vein of De Palma's early thrillers. But with a modern twist, the hero is a closeted jock who struggles with his sexuality if kept him from tapping into an inherited psychic talent. This is a cool, well-crafted film hovering just off the radar. In the Blood premieres on the Logo Network on October 28th and twice on Halloween. The unrated DVD releases simultaneously exclusively through the web until it hits the stores in March 2008. And I may interview the cast and crew of the film and will post my review of the film and my interview in an upcoming episode. Further, Emerging Pictures has graciously provided me with a copy of the film to give away to a lucky listener. It is a screener copy, but if you would like to win it, please send me an email with the name of your favorite horror film, and I'll be sure to include your full contact information, including address, to darkgatehorror at gmail.com, and I'll choose one entry at random to receive the screener DVD. The deadline to email me is November November 10, 2007. Visit the website and watch the trailer at intheblood-movie.com. A link will be in the show notes as well as the details for the contest. So next, there are, I want to read a short little article called Five Frightening Flicks for the Fall. These are the most anticipated horror films for the fall and winter season, according to Fandango. Number five, Stephen King's The Mist, opening November 21. Screenwriter-director Frank Darabond, the man who successfully brought to the screen these classic Stephen King's stories, The Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, now crafts this new Spooky King adaptation. This one concerns an atmospheric fog that enshrouds a small town main supermarket and the creepy bug monsters that emerge from the mist. The stars include Oscar winner Marcia Gay Harden and Thomas Jane. Number four, 30 Days of Night, opening October 19th. Vampires visiting Alaska in the darkness of winter? What better place for creatures who can't handle the glare of the sun? Spider-Man director Sam Raimi produces a tale of a very long winter with 30 days of darkness. Awfully convenient for the special effects guys, as effects always look creepier in the dark. Based on the cult graphic novel and starring Josh Hartnett, Melissa George, and Ben Foster, this horror flick should be a boon for travel to the Great White North. Number 3, Alien vs. Predator, Requiem. Opening December 25. 
Not since King Kong vs. Godzilla have two movie monsters been so well-matched. The Brothers Strauss, the visual effects wizards behind 300, X-Men The Last Stand, and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer present this big-budget splatterfest, predicted to deliver the R-rated gross-out chills that fans had expected with the first Alien vs. Predator grudge match. Number two, Resident Evil Extinction, now playing. Let's see, the second Resident Evil movie was subtitled Apocalypse, so... You would have thought that the end, that was the end of the trail, but you'd be forgetting about extinction. And what better place to locate the end of humanity than in the shifting sands of a dilapidated Sin City? The Las Vegas-based installment of the popular video game movie series stars the ultra-skinny, beloved heroine Mila Jovovich in her continuing fight to eliminate the Umbrella Corp's nasty virus while blowing away thousands of zombies and a gangle of new creatures. And number one, Saw 4, opening October 26. They saw, they came, and they conquered the box office. It's the franchise that established a new horror standard, and it's back just in time for Halloween. As Jigsaw moans in the trailer, you think it'd be over, but the games have just begun. And what grisly games they are. The FBI is hot on the trail of everybody's favorite sick puppy. Several clues lead them to Jigsaw's ex-wife, played by Betsy Russell, who's glimpsed briefly in the Saw 3 flashback. I have to tell you, I am probably most excited about Saw 4, although... I am also looking forward to 30 Days of Night. Neither one I've been able to see. It is my favorite of the horror franchises that are sort of current and up and coming right now. So let's move on to the main topic, urban legends. An urban legend or urban myth is similar to a modern folklore consisting of stories or are thought to be factual by those circulating them. Urban legends are not necessarily untrue, but they're often distorted, exaggerated, or sensationalized. Despite the name, a typical urban legend does not necessarily originate in an urban setting. The term is designed to differentiate them from traditional folklore in pre-industrial times. Urban legends are sometimes repeated in news stories and, in recent years, distributed by email. People frequently allege that su- such tales happen to a friend of a friend. Origins The first study of the concept now described as an urban legend seems to be Edgar Morin's La Rumeur d'Orléans in French in 1969. Jan Harold Brunvend, Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Utah, used the term urban legend in print as early as 1979 in a book review appearing in the Journal of American Folklore. Even at that time, researchers had been writing about the phenomenon for a long time, but with varying terminology. Brunvend used his collection of legends, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, American Urban Legends and Their Meanings, to make two points. First, that legends, myths, and folklore do not occur exclusively to so-called primitive or traditional societies, and second, that one can learn much about urban and modern culture by studying such tales. Brunvin has since published a series of similar books and is credited as the first to use the term vector to describe a person or entity passing on an urban legend. Structure. The compelling appeal of a typical urban legend is that it's elements of mystery, horror, fear, or humor. Many urban legends are presented as warning or cautionary tales, while others might be more aptly called widely dispersed misinformation, such as the erroneous belief that a college student will automatically pass all courses in a semester if one's roommate commits suicide. While such facts may not have the narrative elements of traditional urban legend, they are nevertheless conveyed from person to person with the typical elements of horror, humor, or caution. Much like some folktales of old, there are urban legends dealing with unexplained phenomena, such as phantom apparitions. Propagation and Belief Many urban legends depict horrific crimes, contaminated foods, or other situations which, if true, might affect a lot of people. 
Anyone believing such stories might feel compelled to warn loved ones. A person might also pass on non-cautionary information simply because it is funny or interesting. Many urban legends are essentially extended jokes, told as if they were true events. In some cases, they may have originated as pure jokes, personalized by a subsequent teller to add force and point. Many urban legends, like tall tales in general, contain a grain of truth. The urban legend that Coca-Cola developed the drink Fanta to sell in Nazi Germany without public backlash originated as an actual tale of German Max Keith. He invented the drink and ran Coca-Cola's operations in Nazi Germany during World War II. Other urban legends are rooted in racism and or anti-Semitism. For example, a common urban myth of the Middle East is the blood libel, which says Jews drink the blood of Christian children. Variations of the myth depict the baking of babies' blood into holiday pastries. Some urban legends have been devised by parents who wish to scare their children into obedience. Such tales often depict someone, usually a child, acting in a disagreeable manner, only to wind up hurt, dead, or in trouble. People sometimes take urban legends to be true instead of recognizing them as tall tales or un- unsubstantiated rumors because of the way they're told. The teller of an urban legend may claim it happened to a friend, who, which serves to personalize and enhance the power of the narrative. Since people, unconsciously or otherwise, often exaggerate, conflate, or edit stories when telling them, urban legends can evolve over time. Documenting Urban Legends The advent of the internet has facilitated the proliferation of urban legends. At the same time, however, it's allowed more efficient investigation of the social phenomenon. Discussing, tracking, and analyzing urban legends has become a popular pursuit. It's the topic of the Usenet alt.folklore.urban and several web pages, most notably snopes.com. That's S-N-O-P-E-S dot com. It's a great website. The United States Department of Energy has a service called Hoax Busters that deals with all sorts of computer-distributed hoaxes and legends. And a television series, Myth Busters, tries to prove or disprove urban legends by attempting to reproduce them. Let's talk about the use of urban legends in films. Urban legends are so common that they infiltrate every strand of life, whether we're really aware of them. However, we're going to discuss a sampling of horror films which integrate urban legends into the mythos of the film. First one, Urban Legends from 1998. It's a horror film starring Alicia Witt, Jared Leto, Rebecca Gayhart, Robert Englund, best known for his role as Freddy Krueger, Tara Reid, and Joshua Jackson. The film is based on the premise that a killer is using the methods of death described in certain urban legends as a means to kill his victims. The characters and plot are kind of weak, kind of a scream knockoff, but was popular with the ever-wanted audience, girls, due to the good-looking cast. I did like the film when it first came out, but on a totally different level than the way I'm analyzing them today. There are some great moments in which it does not take itself so seriously, like when Wit and Jackson drive out to a makeout spot and I Don't Want to Wait is playing on the radio. The song is a theme song for Dawson's Creek TV series where Jackson is best known for playing Pacey. But the opening scene where Brad Dourif plays a stuttering gas station attendant is absolutely brilliant. In fact, I wish the film could have kept that momentum going throughout the whole film instead of sort of sliding backwards and coming up with a plot from then that was really not all that believable, although just watching the urban legends played out, I think was worth the, the watch. Alicia Witt's performance earned her a nomination for a Saturn Award for Best Performance by a Younger Actor-Actress by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. The film is followed by two sequels, 
The first, Urban Legends Final Cut, was released theatrically in 2000. I saw it in the theater and it was terrible. (laughs) I won't even talk about it. And the second, Urban Legends Bloody Mary, went direct to video in mid-2005 and I have not seen it. I'm going to do a brief description of the various Urban Legends used as plot points in this film rather than actually focus on the plot itself. Because it's really all about the Urban Legends anyway. The first one, Aren't You Glad You Didn't Turn On The Light?, After coming home late and getting ready for bed in the dark, a college co-ed wakes up the next morning to receive the shock of her life. Her roommate is dead, and on the wall sprawled out in her roommate's blood says, Aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? The second, the boyfriend's death. Late at night on an isolated country road, a teenage girl waits for her boyfriend to return to the car after going outside to relieve himself. After what seems like an eternity, she is startled by the sound of something scraping across the roof of the vehicle. She finally starts the car and she drives off, and as she does, she sees her rear in the rearview mirror her boyfriend hanging from the tree. It was his feet that were scraping on the top of the car. There are variations of this, including that of the hook man. The third one is Humans Can Lick Too. Once there was a beautiful young girl who lived in a small town just south of Farmersburg. Her parents had to go to town for a while, so they left their daughter home alone, but protected by her dog, which was a very large collie. The parents told the girl to lock all the windows and doors after they had left, and she did so, and as she was laying in bed, she was scared, and so she put her hand down, and the dog licked her hand. Every time she'd heard a noise that night, she put her hand down, licked, and the dog licked her hand. The next morning, she realizes that there's a killer in the house, and that her dog is dead, and that he had been licking her. Number four, the kidney thieves. The crime begins when a business traveler goes to a lounge for a drink at the end of the workday. A person in the bar walks up and offers to buy him a drink. The last thing the traveler remembers until he wakes up in the hotel room bathtub, his body is submerged up to the neck in ice and is sipping that drink. There's a note taped to the wall instructing him not to move and to call 911. The killer in the back seat. One night, a woman went out for drinks with her girlfriends. She left the bar fairly late at night, got in her car, and onto the deserted highway. She noticed a lone pair of highlights in the rearview mirror and approaching at a pace just quickly than hers. They force her to the side of the road, and the person warns her, runs up to the car, and warns her that there's a killer in the back seat. And what do you know? There is a killer in the back seat with a hatchet about to kill her. The next one is Flash Your Headlights and Die. This is a gang initiation legend in which a car flashes another car with its headlights off, and the car with the lights off turns out to be gang members who force the other car off the road or otherwise injure the other driver. In this case, the legend ends up having to bear far too much weight plot-wise in this film. One of the weaker moments of the story is a flashback to events supposedly explaining why all these horrible deeds are being done in the present. One that I've never been terribly interested in, the poodle in the microwave, an elderly woman comes up with a novel way to dry off her soggy pet in a hurry, is seen at the party that goes on in this episode, in this movie, and... They mention Love Roller Coaster. It's a song by the Ohio Players in which the real-life scream of a murdered woman is supposedly audible in the background of the song. And finally, they talk about Mikey and the Pop Rocks. It's those little candies, Pop Rocks, that when you put them in your mouth, they pop. They're very fun for kids. But the urban legend says that if you mix that with some sort of Pepsi or Coke, it'll explode. And that that's what happened to Mikey, the child actor from the Life commercials, was that he drank Coke and Pop Rocks and died. But in reality, that's not true. The second film I'm going to discuss is a far superior film, that of Candyman from 1992. Candyman is a classic, tragically overlooked slasher film starring Virginia Madsen, Tony Todd, and Xander Berkeley. 
It was directed by Bernard Rose and is based on the short story The Forbidden by Clive Barker, although the film's scenario switched from England to the United States and placed in Chicago. Currently, it has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's a fantastic film. I'm going to briefly cover the plot on this one for those of you who have not watched it. I do recommend watching it. You can kind of imagine how it's going to end before it starts, but there's a great twist in it, and I'm not going to tell you that part. Helen Lyle is a graduate student conducting research on modern folklore. While interviewing freshmen about their superstitions, she hears about a local legend known as Candyman, the son of a slave who was brutally tortured and murdered. According to the legend, anyone who looks into a mirror and chants his name five times will summon him, but at the cost of his or her own life. Thinking this is just a new spin she has been looking for, Helen enters the notorious gang-ridden territory known as the Cabrini Green Housing Projects, the site of a brutal murder. Helen believes that Candyman cannot exist, but when she calls him into our world, a string of murders begins and the police look to her as the primary suspect. Now only one person can set her free, the Candyman. Much like another of Clive Barker's creations, the Cenobites of the Hellraiser films, or the legend of Bloody Mary, the Candyman must be called into existence, so often the, uh, the deciding factor in a character's safety is in his or her belief. If you believe, you are more likely not to summon him, but if you do not, you would do it just to prove the lunacy of it, and as such, end up dead. Let's talk about the mythology of this film, because that's what's so interesting. Candyman establishes itself as an allegorical film, and it begins as a very good one that slyly comments on myths in popular culture. It's curious, for example, how many urban myths have crept in our collective psyche so that they are retranslated to play out on common fears and stereotypes. Because Candyman is African-American, the film informs us he has become a popular folk hero in the ghettos of Chicago. When Madsen, a pretty white woman, is forced to enter into this predominantly black, lower-class side of town in order to investigate this legend, a peer cautions her, are you sure you want to go over there? Haven't you heard that those people rape white rich women? Director Bernard Rose shrewdly generates tension based on this fear by simply surrounding this white woman around poor, rough-looking black men. Now, is there any danger here, or are racist, racist assumptions simply fueling our, and certainly Madsen's, paranoia? It's a curious approach to discussing racial stereotyping. Even more so because Candyman himself is played by Tony Todd, a charismatic black actor who seems to represent everything Madsen is warned about. Urban legends that are not restricted to supernatural tales, they are generated from our own harmful prejudices, just so much as they are in innocent fears of the dark. Candyman is so-called because a white slave owner exacted a terrible vengeance on a free black portrait painter who fell in love with and impregnated his virginal daughter. He cut off the right hand of the man, placing a hook in its place, and covered the man's body with honey right before releasing an apiary full of bees who stung him to death. The revenging revenant, however, decides on an interesting twist. He does not haunt white people and kill for vengeance. Rather, he haunts the shadowy areas or poor urban tenements. As his main purpose seems to serve as a reminder of exactly how dangerous a murderous life is in such communities. But even though he seems to limit his influence to areas notorious for black-on-black violence like Chicago's Cabrini Green housing project, Candyman becomes the embodiment of just about everything horrifying in an urban legend. The person who places razor blades in candy, the monster under the bed, the man with the hook hand who slices and dices, the kidnapper of small children, the castrator of boys in restrooms, the monster who comes out of the mirror, and to top that off he seems to be the largest producer of ominous graffiti in the projects. Candyman is a horror film about horror films. As such, there is a self-reflective quality that will appeal to fans of postmodernism. The Candyman takes from 
partakes his power from fear, since fear is the basis of racism, and the title character actually draws his existence from the very force that caused his demise. By staging the story as an exploration into urban legends, the movie itself creates a scenario within The Boogeyman is expected to be merely a product of superstition, as is the case in the less unfortunate urban legend. To then reveal an actual supernatural entity, and in doing so, calls into question the lead character's sanity, and that adds a new dimension to the proceedings. The myth is angry because it's been debunked, and now it must reassert itself to continue feeding on the fear of those who believe in it. So the myth itself is absolutely fascinating, and I implore you to seek out this film at your earliest convenience if you have not seen it. And if you haven't seen it for a long time, dig it out again, because it's just still as prominent today and current today as it was in 1992. A little bit of trivia, Sweets to the Sweet, which was written on the walls on two areas in Cabrini Green, is actually a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And you may recognize the Candyman as a retelling of Bloody Mary. According to Brunvand, I believe in Mary Worth is the formula that is supposed to be chanted a set number of times while staring into a mirror in a darkened room, often the bathroom, sometimes lit by candles in order to summon out of the mirror the avenging spirit of a witch or ghoul. Who wants to do this? Usually, it's groups of adolescent girls at parties or summer camps. The ritual is well known all over the U.S., with only the name of the spirit changing. Variations include Mary Wills, Mary Worthington, Mary Johnson, Mary Lou, Mary Jane... Bloody Mary, the one I'm accustomed to, and even Kathy. Sometimes the ritual demands that the speaker repeat, I do not believe in, and then insert the name, or I hate, and then insert the name. In many places, it is said that Mary will spring out of the mirror and scratch the face of the one calling on her, but why anyone would invite this attack is not explained. Nevertheless, many women rather nostalgically remember performing the scary ritual with friends during their adolescent years, although none ever claims to have seen the practice yield the rumored results. I'm guilty. My friend Brian and I tried this out when we were about 12 or so, and we scared each other, but we never saw anything happen. To this day, though, bathroom mirrors do creep me out a little bit. The legend component of the ritual is sketchy, consisting usually of vague stories about some kind of tragedy suffered by the real Mary that disfigured her and made her determined to harm other young girls, blah blah blah. Evidently, the character has no relationship to the Mary Worth of the comic strip, but some folklorists have suggested that there may be a connection to the legend of La Leona, the weeping woman of Mexican-American folklore. Another traditional link must be to the folklore and fairy tales and folk beliefs. In the TV series Supernatural, urban legends are often the subject of episodes, and for more information, see my Supernatural podcast episodes for Pilot, um, in which they talked about the Weeping Woman and the Vanishing Hitchhiker, Bloody Mary and Hookman, among others. So let's go on to the third legend we're going to look at, and this is of the Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. As told by Brunvand in his Encyclopedia of Urban Legends, a babysitter receives repeated phone calls from a man who asks her in a menacing manner, Have you checked the children? Sometimes he says that he has killed the children and soon he will kill her too. The sitter, too terrified to check the children in their upstairs bedroom, calls the police who advise her to keep the man in the line when he calls next so they can trace the call. After another call, the police call her back and warn her, Get out of the house right away. A policeman waiting outside explains that the calls were traced to the upstairs extension phone where the caller is found having already murdered the children and poised to attack the babysitter. Widely told since the 1970s and especially popular among teens who babysit, this legend was developed into the 1979 horror film When a Stranger Calls. 
with a remake in 2006. Like the killer in the backseat and the choking Doberman, this babysitting legend tells of an intruder hiding on the premises. And warning against him, as in the Doberman legend, comes via the telephone and commands the intended victim to get out of the house. Folklorists have suggested that the death of children in the babysitter's care represents her ultimate failure as a future homemaker and mother. The killer's positioning upstairs above the female sitter may signify the traditional dominant role of men in sexual and power relationships. And a couple notes about this. When a stranger calls, this film, 1979, was number 28 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. And the concept of a killer calling another telephone in the same house is an urban legend that was also used in the films Black Christmas and Scream. Let's move on to a couple articles. The first one is an excerpt from Encyclopedia of Urban Legends by Brunvand from the chapter Film and Urban Legends. Because of their uncomplicated, fast-moving plots, bizarre subject matter, widespread appeal, and perhaps most of all, their anonymous free circulation in the public domain, urban legends have had a strong appeal to many filmmakers. The sinister nature of horror legends probably influenced the whole genre of so-called slasher films, especially the Halloween series of films with their allusions to rumors of Halloween, sadists, and the like. A campus setting was necessarily used in the horror film Dead Man on Campus from 1998, which dealt with the suicide rule, a legend of academia. The 1992 film Candyman pioneered the merging of the horror film with the idea of actual urban legend research and the moderately successful production of, mo- of a graduate student investigating folklore confronting a threatening character who may be summoned by a ritual reminiscent of I Believe in Mary Worth and seems to personify the hook man of urban legends. Thus far, the most obvious reference to urban legends in the study of the film, unfortunately a flawed attempt, was the 1998 film Urban Legends. The opening sequence of the campus slasher movie dramatized the killer in the back seat, and the plot went on to show the death of little Mikey, the roommate's death, the boyfriend's death, and almost the kidney heist, among other stories. Urbania is an artistic and gripping film inspired by urban legends. This independent, low-budget film premiered at the 2000 Sundance Film Festival, received raves from film critics, and went into general release later in the year. It stars Dan Futterman as a gay man on a quest to avenge his murdered partner. From the opening lines of dialogue, Hear Any Good Stories Lately?, the film included several urban legends either told, alluded to, or enacted, each of them in some way relevant to the larger plot. Among the legend themes include, included are kidney thefts, needle attacks, microwaved pets, the baby left on the car roof, the unexpected inheritance story, the infamous toothbrush photo legend, and AIDS Mary. Run Van's Encyclopedia of Urban Legends is a fantastic resource. I've read most of it now, as well, as well as several of his other books. And if you're into urban legends, he is the premier source. Finally, my second article is Hollywood Discovers an Apocryphal Legend, Two Films Focus on Suicide Rules by Leo Reisberg. It's one of the most persistent and morbid rumors on college campuses. If your roommate kills himself, you automatically get straight A's for the semester. To the chagrin of college administrators, two black comedies from Hollywood are giving the suicide rule more notoriety this fall. In Dead Man on Campus, released last month by Paramount Pictures, 
Two students on the verge of flunking out try to find a suicidal third roommate and nudge him over the edge. In Dead Man's Curve, scheduled for release next month by Trimark Pictures, two students plan to murder their roommate and make it look like suicide. In the first of the two movies, Josh and Cooper, who are freshman roommates at fictitious or fictitious Daleman College, overindulge in sex, drugs, and rock and roll and see their grades plummet as a result. Cursing their fate in a local bar, they strike up a conversation with an alumnus who mentions an obscure campus policy that awards a 4.0 grade point average to the roommate of any student who commits suicide. It's like a consolation prize, the alumna says. To Cooper, the idea makes sense. You can't be expected to study if you're grieving, grieving over a dead roommate. In reality, similar conversations go on in dormitory lounges, campus dining halls, and off-campus taverns across the country. If you've been a student any time in the past 20 years, chances are that you've heard some version of the rumor. One variant applies the policy to almost any kind of death. But the policy is like the movies, pure fiction. No campus is known to have such a rule, although some students treat the belief as if it were gospel. I heard it my freshman year and believed it, says Shannon O'Neill, a senior at Marquette University. I remember we were all sitting around the dorm talking about grades and roommate problems, and since the movie came out, we all brought it up. I know we all believed in it at some point. College administrators on various campuses have tried to debunk the belief, but, like other myths, it has displayed considerable staying power, especially in the wake of actual deaths. When a Marquette sophomore died in a rooming house fire in 1989, the Milwaukee Journal reported that rumor that had spread across campus that a 4.0 GPA would be awarded to the roommates. Marquette officials issued an emphatic denial. Jan Harold Brunvan, retired English professor at the University of Utah, who is expert on folklore, debunked the suicide rule in a 1989 book about urban legends, Curses Broiled Again. Mr. Brunvan found that the rumor was in circulation at many colleges. If there's a college campus in the country that does not have a suicide rule legend, I've yet to discover it, he wrote. And if there's one that does have such a rule in the books, I haven't found it yet either. William Fox, a sociology professor at Skidmore College, learned just how popular the popular the myth was when he conducted a survey of students at Skidmore and on the State University of New York's campus at New Peltz in the mid-1980s. About half of the 82 students surveyed at Skidmore believed that their college had such a policy, and four out of five thought that at least about half of the 82 students surveyed at Skidmore believed that their college had such a policy, and four out of five thought that at least some other college did. At New York Peltz, about 125 of the 150 students surveyed believed that it was true there, and all but 15 thought it was true at other colleges. At some colleges, belief has it that a student gets the 4.0 if his or her roommate dies for any reason, including accidental death, illness, or murder, unless, of course, the surviving roommate turns out to be the killer. And in another version, two housemates or two roommates must share the compensation for their grief. Instead of a 4.0, they'd each get a 3.5. Yet another variation gives the surviving roommate first pick in the next housing lottery. These kinds of stories reflect the students' perceptions of the world, Mr. Fox says. Students see things such as grades as absolutely arbitrary. In an anthology of folklore papers in 1990, he wrote that the rumor seemed to be fairly new. Although it had already been widely disseminated among students by then, only the youngest administrators and fac faculty members 
could recall talk of a suicide rule from their own college days. Mr. Fox speculates that the rumor emerged in the mid-1970s because it portrays college administrators as caring, concerned, and benevolent. It's doubtful that students who attended college during times of unrest such as the late 60s would have painted administrators in such a favorable light, he says. But at institutions where students have been lost to suicide in recent years, the, the new attention to the legend isn't generating many chuckles. At Cornell University, for example... At least five students have killed themselves since 1990 by leaping into one of the two steep, rocky gorges that run along the campus, according to reports from newspapers and campus officials. Nationally, one in 7,500 to 10,000 college students commit suicide every year, according to researchers. With questions like that, it's no wonder some college administrators fear that life may imitate art. Will some unprincipled students be tempted to take what they think is the short route to good grades, as the characters do in the new movies? I hope we never have to deal with that, says James E. Caswell, Vice President for Student Affairs at Southern Methodist University. But we've been surprised before, haven't we? This article was courtesy of the Chronicle of Higher Education, Inc. from 1998. Other sources used in my discussion of urban legends include wikipedia.org. All of the links will be in the show notes. uashome.alaska.edu, lsu.edu, slash necrophile, slash candyman24, creativescreenwriting.com, the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends by Jan Harold Brunvand, and of course, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Incorporated. The song of the night tonight's a little different than our usual songs. It's a folk song by a very talented musician, Mark Gunn, who often performs with the Brobdenagian Bards. It's an Austin, Texas-based Irish group. Here is Rabbit for Halloween by Mark Gunn. Enjoy. She was someone's daughter once and so a beautiful thing Her crooked nose and greenish skin, they don't bother me If she stopped trying to kill me, I wouldn't care one bit That she was a witch with a tiny hitch, which was spellcasting itch Now I'm, I'm running through the halls and I'm running through the rooms I run into a closet and I climb up on a broom I fly up in the sky across the yellow moon But the witch's eye with a lustful gleam wants a rabbit for Halloween She opened up her door and saw I was one ugly witch But it's Halloween and I trick-or-treat and my witch mask is rich But a magic mirror on the wall said she's uglier than thou And now I find sweat on my brow from her spell casting down Now I'm, I'm running through the halls and I'm running through the rooms I run into a closet and I climb upon a broom I fly up in the sky across the yellow moon But the witch's eye with a lustful gleam wants a rabbit Halloween You should know that I'm a rabbit And you are just a witch I know your mama loved you once, so I accept the glitch. But once you drink that potion, your genie on the wall 
can throw the whistle, his cat call and chase you down the hall. And you're you're running through the halls and you're running through the rooms. You run into a closet and you climb up on your broom. You fly up in the sky across the yellow moon. But the genie's eye with a lustful gleam wants you for Halloween. Then you're you're running through the halls and you're running through the rooms. You run into a closet and you climb up on your broom. You fly up in the sky across the yellow moon. But the genie's eye with a lustful gleam wants you for Halloween. That's it for this Halloween episode. The next episode will cover houses having a conscious will or soul. Until then, take care and have a fantastic Halloween. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. Visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com and send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com. Music tonight has been provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com. Finally, thanks to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. You can visit his website at joshwoodward.com. <laughs>